Hey, if you can turn to Psalm 137. Uh, this morning we have an intrusion of the projection system upon our worship service. Um, we're not ready to do the, um, the lyrics up there yet, but um, I had reason for the first point. So we're going to use it anyway. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the city of Jerusalem, sorry, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to the foundations. O daughter of Babylon, Doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Father, thank you that this was written for our instruction that we might endure and through the encouragement of the scriptures have hope although it doesn't necessarily look that way when we read it. As the God of endurance and encouragement grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope through the Scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. All right, Matt. Took a picture, and I recently uh, put it on our Facebook page, but I realized that not all of you are on Facebook. So I thought Amen. we could, uh, <coughs> we're having trouble. There we go. Uh, I was hoping that would be bigger. Oh, well. I promised to explain this, and in a sense I sort of will, uh, but I want us to kind of think through this. What reason could I possibly have for taking this photo? Uh, for those of you who are kind of squinting at this photo, it's actually a jacket and a uh, New England Patriots scarf dangling from a coat hook in a mudroom in upstate New York. And so if I were to kind of ask you uh, what reason might I have for this, you might postulate a couple of different ideas. This could be my version of saying, baby, it's cold outside um, because of the winter jacket and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, perhaps you might think Steve is just trying to once again declare his unfailing love for the New England Patriots. We could have a number of interpretations uh, about this picture. Okay? And they might have elements of truth to them, but they may not actually cut to the real reason that I took this picture. It's similar, I think, to this psalm. 
because as you read this psalm and as I look at the commentaries, I see lots of speculation as to why this psalm was written or what this psalm means. For instance, some like James Montgomery Boyce, he's not the only one, uh, but they've kind of taken this psalm and used it to uh, develop this idea or continue this idea or perhaps see in light of this idea of Babylon as the um, epitome of evil and the contrast, the struggle between Babylon and Jerusalem. Okay. Some have read this psalm and talked about this psalm and they focus uh, merely upon the historical data and they, they understand this as a lament that takes place that includes a series of uh, precatory uh, psalms, comments, okay, where you're pronouncing curses upon other people. And of course you have those who think that this is an abysmal piece of literature and should be banned from the Bible, Okay. How should we look at this song? I think there's a couple of things that really ought to sort of um, provide the boundaries for us to understand this psalm properly. And one of those is, of course, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is helpful for instruction. And so I'm coming at this from the perspective that this is God-breathed, God-spoken and inspired, and therefore it's useful for us. It's not something to be banished because it has some sentiments in it that we might find uncomfortable. Not only that, but as Tim Keller uh, says in the beginning of his devotional uh, on the Psalms, what he notes is that the Psalms were really instructive for the Israelites as to how to express, how to live their faith. And that by extension for us, the Psalms are also useful to help us to understand how to live by faith. What devotion to God looks like in the nuts and bolts of ordinary life, and sometimes ordinary life includes extraordinary circumstances. And so if we approach this with the, the perspective of what does faith look like when your world falls apart, I think it becomes far more helpful. So what are the circumstances of this psalm and what is the response of the author or authors? It begins with this statement, by the waters of Babylon. That tells the story. Or maybe for those of you who, are, who understand the, the whole history of Israel, it should tell the story. This is about the exiled people of God. They had gone through their own trail of tears, so to speak. Uh, we're familiar with that from our own nation's history, that phrase. And uh, it's a lot larger than perhaps many of us uh, recall from our history books. It was not just one tribe that was relocated under the administration of Andrew Jackson, uh, but numerous tribes that were relocated, primarily from the southeastern states into the west. And many of those tribes were relocated more than once. For instance, the Winnebago tribe, it's not just an RV. 
a tribe of people. They were relocated five times. They had five trails of tears of, of different lengths, and they ended up in Nebraska. And so if we look at our map here, see, now we no longer have the imaginary map. We have a real map, okay? What we see is, is uh, Jerusalem there on the left-hand side and Babylon sort of... Uh, kind of just right of center within uh, our map, what we recognize, first off, is that if you could fly like a crow or an airplane, uh, Steve Boyer was to try and fly from Jerusalem to Babylon, it'd be about 500 miles. Not that big of a deal. Okay. (laughs) That might be the bigger problem, is all the custom (laughs) officials. Um, But you didn't... Back in that day, you didn't fly, obviously, and neither did you travel as the crow flies. You traveled where there was water and where there was safety. You followed the trade routes. And so that 500-mile journey ends up being a little over a 1,000-mile journey. Uh, no short stretch when you're in being dragged, basically, across desert terrain. So this was very much a trail of tears as God's people were taken forcibly removed from their homeland and dragged all the way to Babylon. So that's where this takes place, and that is why this takes place. Now, Babylon, as we see from our map as well, was in the Fertile Crescent. It's between the two rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates, although they're given different names on this Jewish map. Um, But those were the two rivers And because of the fact that it was in the Fertile Crescent, it was a place of relative prosperity. So they weren't going to a bad place. They were actually going to, in some sense, a rather good place. And this was part of why Babylon was powerful and prosperous, in addition to the fact that they were bloodthirsty and conquered many other nations and stole their wealth. But let's not talk about that right now. If you were thinking of places to be relocated, this was not necessarily a bad place to be relocated. But it ain't home. But they weren't there by choice. They're far from home. They're far from everything that they held dear. They were far from the temple, and not just far from the temple. The temple had been raised. It had been R-A-Z-E-D, not lifted up. It had been knocked down, destroyed. They're, they're far from their worship. They're far from uh, where the worship is supposed to take place within the temple. But they're far from David's city, and they're far from David's rule. They're far from everything that they know and love except the people that have survived this journey with them. And so it says, there we sat down and wept. They cried their eyes out. They bawled, perhaps uncontrollably. They are expressing extreme emotions in the midst of this psalm. They were so distraught that they hung up their harps or lyres, depending on the translation you, you, you find, um, so that it would be a smaller, it would not be like Rachel Green's ginormous harp. Uh, you can't really hang that in a poplar tree. Uh, so it would be those smaller ones, like we're familiar with the pictures of David playing, uh, hung up in a tree, meaning they're, they're not playing them. 
They're allowing them to collect dust for the time being. They're refusing to worship at this point. This is a picture of a grieving community. The Psalms are filled with these extreme emotions of, of people who speak metaphorically of being, being in a flood. The, the deep, dark depressions that some of the Psalms indicate, as well as the anger that some of the Psalms indicate. There are a variety of strong emotions. But the Psalms also contain hope for those who experience strong emotions. For instance, Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those are people who aren't just having a bad day, but feel ground under the wheel. Those are people who don't know if they can make it the next hour, much less the next day. Sometimes we feel that way. But sometimes, usually, we're afraid to say we feel that way. We see strong emotions, I think, again, or these extremes, again, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Eh, we're not talking about those folks. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. So there's obviously within the community of God that Paul is writing to in Thessalonica, there were people who were faint-hearted, who could really identify, I think, with the authors of this psalm. There are people who were weak and not sure they could continue anymore. Why were these people so downhearted, so brokenhearted and crushed in spirit? In addition to the, the exile and everything that came with it, what we see is they say, our captors required of us song and our tormentors mirth. The Babylonians who were around them, who had destroyed their home, are now mocking them. They sing us a song of Zion, will you? They're rubbing salt deep into their wounds. They're adding all kinds of insult to the injury that they have experienced. And the psalmists cry out, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They were too sad to sing. Think for a moment. How would you evaluate their responses in this time of hardship? If they had come to you for counsel, uh, kind of, what would what do you think you might say to them about the fact that they're weeping uncontrollably and they've hung up their harps or lyres? Would you judge them? Would you look down on them and think them weak? Would you express compassion toward them? Would you be near to them as the Lord is near to the brokenhearted? As I said, the Psalms are filled with extreme emotions, high highs and low lows. And 
by culture and temperament, many of us are uncomfortable with those high highs and those low lows. Very uncomfortable. But it's not just the Psalms. We see that Jesus also expressed what we could consider extreme emotions. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that you were at the temple when the events of John 2 took place. And you see this itinerant rabbi creating a, a whip out of cords and running through the, the area, striking people, driving out the animals, knocking over tables, freeing the birds, telling these, uh, these merchandise men to get out. Sounds kind of extreme, doesn't it? You might be tempted to think Jesus has an anger problem. But he didn't. Fast forward to the earthly ministry of Jesus, and here we are at the, the temple, oh, sorry, the tomb of Lazarus, and Jesus weeps. But not only that, but it also, as we've talked about before, when we were in the, the Gospel of John, uh, we talked about how Jesus was also disturbed in his spirit, and that really has the idea of anger or ferocity. Jesus was expressing extreme emotions at the temple, uh, sorry, the tomb, I keep saying that, the tomb of the man Lazarus whom he loved. And so, based on the reality of Jesus, who in Isaiah 53 is called the man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief, uh, Jesus, who, as it talks about in Hebrews 5, um, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Based on the example of Jesus and the example of the Psalms, uh, I would submit to you that sometimes our emotions need to be extreme. In other words, we need to kind of process the events of our life, the extreme process, uh, events of our lives, and allow ourselves to feel their impact rather than just shutting down and moving on. In other words, spiritual maturity includes emotional maturity. Okay, I'm not saying that temper tantrums are okay. But Jesus wasn't having a temper tantrum. Emotional maturity includes the recognition of what's going on inside of us emotionally and being able to express those emotions wisely. Spiritual maturity includes recognizing that everyone's emotional life will vary, that how I respond to something is not the same way you might respond to something. And those of you who have children, you know this clearly. I have four. Very different responses to the trials of life. And I can't expect one to act like the other. 
there's no model uh, of how a particular set of circumstances ought to be handled, but each of them will express it in their own ways, deal with the sinful aspect of it, but not with the fact that they respond. And so we don't want to overlook grief. Emotional maturity, spiritual maturity doesn't overlook grief, doesn't say it doesn't matter. But on the other hand, it also doesn't get stuck in grief or anger or whatever the emotion might be. And so a healthy spirituality allows the place for emotions to be expressed but not stuck in. Although that can be tough to sort out. We don't want to overlook it, but we also don't want to overindulge it. We don't want to uh, have sinful emotions either. And so that brings us sort of to the iceberg. The recognition that um, what you see above the surface is only a fraction of what's really there. When you're dealing with another human being, one, the circumstances that you know about are only the ones on the surface. You don't necessarily know about all those other circumstances that the person's dealing with. And if you, as the person dealing with your emotions, sometimes all you know about is what's visible. You don't know about all of the stuff that's firming around underneath the surface of your life that you need to deal with, that if you don't, it can destroy you. Families, churches, communities should express their sorrow together. Which brings us back to the picture from the beginning. Why do I have that there? That scarf was put was uh, made by and given to me by Claire Miller, who passed away this last year. So that's one of those little reminders I have of Claire, and it's also a cause to grieve. It reminds me that we as a congregation have experienced a number of losses in the last couple of years. We lost Jim and Claire. The Forsyths moved away. The other Pixleys moved away. We've had some people take their stuff and go home. We've had an elder resign and leave the church, and that is difficult stuff. Mature Christianity does not just say, oh, well, move on. Mature Christianity says, we've lost something, and it's okay to be sorry about it. Just not forever. So I'm inviting you to look below the surface of the water to a degree. This, I think this psalm invites us to look below the surface of the water, to, to face the things that, uh, that we necessarily don't want to face because they're intensely powerful 
And sometimes we, we're, we're afraid to do that precisely because they are powerful and we don't want them to destroy our lives, to wreak havoc in our lives. But I tell you, the less you address it, the more they will wreak havoc in your lives. So we find the instruction of Scripture in places like Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. As a community, I don't know we're very good with the weeping part. But maturity for us will include becoming a safe place to express emotions. And I think that's an area we need to grow. I've uh, been telling people lately, it's been a hard year or a hard couple of years. You know that's safe. It's very safe to say that because that's an objective sort of thing. It has been hard. But it says nothing about how I'm processing the hardness of that. And the reason why I don't say how I'm processing the hardness of that is because I don't necessarily feel safe. And if I don't feel safe, then I'm thinking that a lot of you might not feel safe to express what's really going on and bringing that into community so that we can help one another, so we can encourage one another, if the, the, you know, the, encourage the faint-hearted and helping the weak. There's something about us that doesn't feel safe about expressing the fact that we're faint-hearted, that we're weak, that we're crushed in spirit, that we're brokenhearted. That, I think, is a place for us to grow by faith. And so the first thing I think this psalm says to us is to express your emotions to the man of sorrows. He understands. He gets it. He's been there. So what do you do after you express the emotions of sort of a big loss like that? Well, it's interesting because the first four verses, it's all we, 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 we. And now in verse 5, it shifts to I. The plural becomes singular. This is about his, his personal response to what's going on. And I think it speaks to the fact that after sorrows, we can often make the wrong kinds of vows. Talked about, uh, well, I, in, in my counseling program, we talked about the vow that often happens. This will never happen to me again. Okay? And we see that on a national scale all the time. As if we could control that. As if we could eliminate all school shootings or pick your poison. We can't. We can't eliminate all drunk driving deaths. We can't because of the prevalence of sin within our community. Sometimes people make other vows. I once counseled with someone years and years ago, and their parents had divorced, and her father had said to her, "Um, always make sure you have a fallback plan. And that really was her vow to herself to always have a fallback plan career-wise. And the reason she was sitting in my office 
was because that fallback plan had destroyed or was in the process of destroying her first marriage. She was so bent on having that career in case she needed to fall back on it that, in fact, she had to fall back on it. We often do destruction within our own lives with some of these vows, but the vows that the psalmist makes are different. He's vowing to live faithfully, not self-protectively. These are good and these are godly vows. These are the kind of vows that, that the Westminster Confession talks about being part of a normal worship. He says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, and then later on, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. In other words, what he's getting at is that he does not want to lose sight of his hopes in the midst of his sadness. He does not want to lose sight of his longings in the midst of his sadness. He doesn't want to lose sight of his, of his joy in the midst of his sorrow. Jerusalem here represents all of those hopes and joys. Uh, Jerusalem represents the worship of God. It represents fellowship with God. It represents the rule of God because that was where David reigned. This week I watched the first part of uh, that Bruce Springsteen on Broadway thing on Netflix. And it was interesting because he was talking about the song My Hometown and basically his, his love-hate relationship with the town where he grew up. And he still has incredibly vivid min- uh, memories of, of uh, Freeport, New Jersey. And as you know from a lot of his songs, he, he can't wait to get out of there. Okay, Baby, we're born to run. You know, Thunder Road, all of these things. And he mentions that now, as an old man, he lives 10 minutes away from his hometown. (laughs) There's something that pulls us back. And I'm sure that for these Israelites, um, while they lived there, they probably didn't have this same mindset. There was probably a part of them that resented having to go to temple again, that resented the rule of God over their lives. There was something in them that resented these things until now it's gone, and they go, I didn't realize how great I had it when I did. May I never forget God's unfailing love that I took for granted. I think that's a lot of what's going on here. That's what I believe. For us, it's not Jerusalem. For us, it is Jesus. He is the one who encapsulates all of the hopes that we have, or at least if we're a Christian, He is the one who encapsulates all the hopes we should have. He is our living temple. He is our Redeemer. He is the rule of God. He's all of those things and more. He's the one who should set above our greatest hope. He is the one in whom all God's promises are yes and amen, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He is the fulfillment of everything God has promised His people, this Jesus. Now, what the psalmist does next is there was the if, now comes the then in other words, uh, he's saying what should happen, and here's the vow part. If I forget these things, 
let my right hand forget its skill for playing the lyre. Let my tongue cleave or stick to the roof of my mouth. May I not even be able to speak or sing if I have lost sight of my hope. He's taking what's called the self-maledictory oath. He's, he's calling down curses upon himself. Okay, mal, bad, dictionary, words. He's calling down an, an oath upon himself if he fails in this regard. He wants to, in a sense, never enjoy music and singing if he loses sight of the reason he sings, which is God and his blessing. And so, I think the second thing faith um, encourages us in our devotion is remembering the great joys that are promised to us in Christ. Uh, Don't let the sorrows blind your eyes to them, uh, but continue to press into them through the Scriptures. Third part of this is what about those who hurt us? What, What really should we do about those folks? And this is where many people find that the wheels fall off on this psalm, and I don't think they fall off at all. He is not vowing to destroy those who hurt him. He's not saying, I'm going to get you. Okay? He's not vowing personal vengeance. Okay? It's important for us to keep that in mind as we read this and process this. He says, Remember the Edomites. He wants the Lord to remember the Edomites. He wants the Lord to remember what the Edomites have done. And we're not sure if Psalm 137 was written before or after the oracle to Obadiah, but they are in concert with one another. God, as we see from Obadiah 1, has made a promise to judge their cousins. Precisely because of the way their cousins gloated over the destruction of Jerusalem. Continues, remember the daughters of Babylon. Or the daughter, rather, of Babylon and the little ones. Again, who's to remember? May the Lord remember. Why should the Lord remember? So the Lord will act. These phrases of the daughter of Babylon and the little ones could refer to those who have fallen under Babylon's spell, not necessarily those who were tied genetically by blood. But what we see here is that The psalmist wants justice against the savage Babylon for its cruelty against God's people. And the phraseology that is used in this psalm is almost identical to the phraseology used in Isaiah 13 about God's judgment upon Babylon, which definitely does predate Psalm 137. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished is just one of the verses in that proclamation of doom against Babylon. We see as well that Habakkuk 
contains oracles against Babylon for the very same reason. The psalmist wants God to keep these promises of judgment against Babylon that he's already made. In light of the fact, not that he doesn't like the Babylonians, but in light of the the wickedness that the Babylonians have committed. And so this is about justice. This is not so much about vengeance or hatred. When we get to Romans 13, we're reminded that we are supposed to entrust our uh, vengeance to God. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so uh, this psalm is an expression of that. It's leaving room for the wrath of God as opposed to trying to take vengeance themselves. And so we as Christians, in the same way, are intended to leave room for the wrath of Jesus and not take it to ourselves. We see from Revelation, particularly Revelation 13, no, not 13, sorry, 19, the fallenness of Babylon and the destruction of Babylon at the hands of Jesus. He's going to take care of business. But we don't have to worry about that. And therefore, we don't have to try and take care of business ourselves. We can entrust it into his care. In other words, the man of sorrows will bring sorrow to those who brought sorrow to his people. He's going to treat them as they treated his people. We can have confidence in this. And so faith calls us to remember the justice that is promised in Christ. So let me tell you a story. It's about a guy by the name of Vincent de Paul, who was a French priest back after the Reformation. He had gone on a journey, and his boat had been captured, and he had been taken by the Barbary pirates who were Muslims. He had been sold as a slave to a, uh, um, a Frenchman who had renounced his Catholicism and embraced Islam and had a number of uh, Islamic wives. So he's not where he wants to be, <laughs> as you might imagine. Working in the fields of North Africa, he began to be taunted by one of the wives. Sing us the songs of your God. And Vincent de Paul sang this psalm. Now, James Montgomery Boyce recounts this story. I don't know where his source is, so maybe it's apocryphal. I'm not sure, but it sure sounds good. Because what happened is the woman reached conviction realized that this God would now bring judgment upon her, for she was the tormentor, and counseled her husband to do two things, to regain his faith in this God and to set this man free. And he did. 
So there must be some truth to the story because Vincent de Paul did not remain in North Africa but returned to France. Jesus is a God who can be trusted. He can be trusted with our sorrows. He can be trusted with our future. And he can be trusted with justice. There's no one else that can be trusted fully with any of those things. But I invite you to trust him with all of them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the practicality of our faith. That you don't hide away from the really ugly parts of life as if um, we have to ignore them and pretend they don't exist, but rather you give us, through faith, ways of coping with those very painful parts of life. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for this psalm, even though it makes me uncomfortable. I thank you that it was inspired by you, that it's God-breathed and authoritative. Father, help us to trust you with these things. And each of us will struggle in different areas. And some of us will struggle with all of them. But help us to trust Jesus with our sorrows with our future, and with justice. It's in his name we pray. Amen.